0: Thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash workingovertime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working over Now let's fire up the time machine.
1: In the year 141, a young Marcus Aurelius wrote a letter to his tutor, a man called Fronto. In this letter, the future Roman emperor provided a rare eyewitness glimpse into a day on his father's imperial winemaking estate, Villa Magna. We are well. I overslept a bit on account of a slight cold, but this seems to have subsided, so at the eleventh hour of the night until the third hour of the day, I read from Cato's De Agricultura and wrote a little bit, less badly than yesterday, thank God. What with my throat tended to, I set out for my father and stood by him at the sacrifice. Then we set ourselves to the task of picking the grapes. We sweated and rejoiced, and as another author says, we left the high-hanging vintage surviving. Then the gong rang, that is, it was announced that my father had gone over to the bath. Having bathed, we therefore dined in the pressing room. We didn't bathe in the pressing room, but having washed, we ate there. And we happily heard the peasants bantering. Passage from Fronto, letters, book four, letter six, translated by M. Andrews. Hey Time Travelers! Welcome back to Working Over Time, the ready-for-it podcast that examines society through the lens of work we do as human beings over time and across cultures. After a much-needed break, I am so thrilled to be back at the controls of the time machine, journeying to distant lands with you, our listeners. Now, for those of you who've been with us from the start, thank you for the memories of Seasons 1 and 2. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, welcome to our little slice of time travel fandom. Before we get into today's topic, I want to announce a new release schedule going forward. Beginning next Friday, May 14th, we'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday or twice a month. This will help us invest a bit more time into episode research and content development and a few other ideas we're cooking up with some of our favorite former guests. So we may not be landing in your podcast feed quite so often as before, but we hope it will be with ever greater passion and creativity. Okay, housekeeping done, let's dive in. With spring here and summer just around the corner, I'm feeling a shift in energies, a renewal of sorts. It's just in the air. And Shifting Seasons is the perfect backdrop for our first episode of the season, Greco-Roman winemakers of the ancient world. Because who doesn't need a drink after the last decade? <clears throat> I, I mean, here, you know, okay, that's it. People have had lots of reasons to wine and wine since, well, ever. And today, we've got Dr. Emlyn Dodd, a Greco-Roman archaeologist who's going to take us through the ancient, fascinating, and ever-timely traditions and technologies around wine cultivation as practiced in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds. Emlyn is Assistant Director for Archaeology at the British School at Rome and an archaeologist. He specializes in the study of ancient Greek and Roman agriculture, technology, trade, and economies. He recently published a book focusing on the wine production and viticulture of two Roman settlements in Turkey and Greece, and he currently is coordinating a survey project across the Cycladic Islands of Greece, investigating the production of wine and oil in the classical to late antique eras. Previously, he's investigated sites in Turkey, Italy, and Greece, including the Athenian Agora and Acropolis and Pompeii just a few places that some of you might have heard of at one time or another. Emlyn, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, I'll talk about wine anytime. One of my favorite beverages.
2: (laughs) Relatable topics.
1: Yeah, well, it is, and it is. I mean, what's sort of interesting, and, and we'll of course get into this, but um, it is one of those alcoholic beverages that that I think still has a little bit of a of a of a tough image right compared to certain other things although it's become a little bit more democratized lately with wine clubs and such which I, I think is only a good thing.
2: It does it does and I, I think we can certainly see parallels in in our modern society's treatment of wine and and what was going on in uh, in the antiquity. Oh
1: I can't wait to hear about it. So the first thing I'd like you to do is just set the scene, please give us the context, the 101, you know, where and when exactly you're going to be talking about today.
2: So today we're going to be traveling mainly to ancient Greece and Italy, um, but also drawing in evidence from across the Mediterranean to talk about winemaking and the famous cultures of Greece and Rome. And this will really include a broad period from um, the classical to Hellenistic Greece around the 5th and 2nd centuries BCE, all the way through to the high imperial period of Rome, uh, following Augustus in the first centuries of our era now. And the interesting thing, to me at least, is that this period comes maybe even 6,000 years after the first emergence of fermented grape drinks, uh, much further to the East, probably in what we now call Iran or, or Georgia. Right, so there's already been right. substantial time for cultures to experiment and come to terms with viticulture and, and the production of what we now know as wine.
1: And could you tell us just, uh, you know, kind of a in a nutshell, what the winemaking industry was like at this time and and how wine as a commodity fit into everyday life for most people.
2: Certainly, and and it's very tricky to do that in a nutshell because it was really ingrained in these cultures and and it played a crucial role across their kind of uh, religion and domestic life and civic life, Uh, also playing a part in medicine and the economy and trade. Um, We know that ancient uh, Greco-Roman people depended on wine as a a means of sanitising, often unhygienic water, um, but also using it as a key source of calories and and nutrition, much in the same way that beer played a major dietary role in other cultures. It also featured prominently across their religious festivals, um, the rituals we hear of Dionysus or Bacchus, the god of wine, uh, and of course, slightly later, the the first Christian Eucharist and the Jewish Passover. So we hear about wine used in a variety of contexts, and then you can even extend through to medicine or or, or cooking. Um, We have writings of Apicius in his cookbooks using wine throughout many recipes. Uh, And then also the the very famous uh, Greek Symposia or or the Roman Convivia, uh, where wine was drunk with uh, meals or following meals. Um, So really, really ingrained across the societies. And, you know, when you extend into looking at the the minutia and the tiny details, you get stories about Julius Caesar and famous Roman kind of rulers serving certain vintages of wine to show off their social status. So you can really go anywhere with this topic
1: give us the the quick overview of the winemaking process, just what the general steps were, and then we can dive in more detail to the areas that are of particular interest.
2: The interesting thing here is, as well, that that very little changed over over the past 3,000 years with the actual winemaking process. I mean, little nuances in technology and, and process kind of changed, but very much stayed the same in terms of harvesting the grapes and uh, treading them or pressing them with mechanical um, instruments, then letting them ferment in in large um, vats or jars or um, occasionally barrels. Uh, And then obviously kind of adding things if you wanted extra flavour or, or letting it ferment for longer or age. So very little changing over, over the last 3000 years in terms of ancient techniques and modern. But the fascinating thing about winemaking and even in antiquity is that there is no really kind of typical day. It, it does depend completely on on season or, or the, the, the uh, aspect that they're up to in the winemaking calendar. So, for example, in the harvest uh, or the vintage season, uh, winemakers would uh, be, be tending their crops, they'd be harvesting their grapes, uh, in terms of things that um, maybe they would be worried about on a, any typical day, um, it was really, really important to process the, the, the harvest and, and get the grapes into the um, facilities as quickly as possible before- yeah, Before the, the it, it stormed,
1: out. right? Or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's exactly. the other thing.
2: <laughs> there were so many variables and in antiquity, especially they had no real way of controlling those like we, we do today. So uh, very important to be efficient with your, with your processing.
1: Well, you know, it, it's, I, I'm going to just come clean that I, I have a little bit of a personal experience with um, particularly the, the harvest aspect of grapes. I, um, you know, have some family members who uh, have a winery in Virginia and I, it's all about the weather. <laughs> it's their farmers. I mean, yes, they do have wine processing facilities on site, but it all lives or dies out on the vine.
2: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and we know that the ancient people were particularly worried about this as well, because we hear in their writings and, and we find inscriptions uh, calling on the gods for protection and, and for good grace from the weather and the season and, and hoping for a good vintage.
1: What would they do in in harvesting grapes? Did they, you know, have a bag they put them in? Was there? a? I mean, what do we know of? or what can we say from the kind of work that you've done about how the the process actually worked of harvesting grapes?
2: So we know that the harvest um, in ancient Greece and Rome was a really important time of the year. We we know uh, a lot of information through the ancient writers. Um, The harvest typically lasted in Rome about 23 days from what they called the calends of September to the Ides of October. And we're told that it was a really um, celebratory and festive atmosphere during the harvest. We, we're told about dancing and, and music and, and those kind of ceremonies. Um, they marked, obviously, as, as all ancient cultures did, the beginning of the harvest and the end of the harvest with religious ceremonies, things called the Vanalia uh, Rustica, which involved sacrificing sheep and picking bunches of grapes. Um, and once they'd, they'd done those uh, celebrations, it was lawful, according to the gods, to harvest the grapes and, and to make the wine. Uh, but I think it's also equally important to really recognise that there was undoubtedly a more somber side to the ancient grape harvest that we don't hear about as much in the sources um, because slaves would have played a huge role in the production cycle of large estates and and latifundia um, in the Roman empire, uh, really underpinning its scale and profitability. Um, So it's difficult to believe that their working conditions would have been uh, so celebratory and as pleasant as we hear in the sources. Uh, So I think there's really two interesting sides to to, uh, think about when we consider ancient uh, winemaking and agriculture in general.
1: Was the harvest something that free workers also participated in, or or was that more the purview of the
2: slaves? It it was very much a a combination of both. Um, The the vine, as you probably know, requires a lot of labor involved in in its cultivation and its harvest, uh, much more than the olive tree, for example, um, and also a quite specialized labor force. Uh, So we know that Slaves really underpinned those large um, industrial kind of estates that we see, particularly through the the Roman uh, imperial period. But we also know that that free people played a really large and important role in it. Um, We hear stories in the literature of uh, uh, freedmen uh, abandoning their daily jobs to go and work on the harvest when they were needed to, uh, uh, we assume, because it paid quite well to go and um, work for the harvest and, and assist some of these winemakers to make sure they got their produce in in a timely manner. So we know that it was a a real combination of both. Whether whether they worked side by side and together is is much more difficult to tell, but they certainly both participated.
1: And so once all of the grapes are off the vine, what happens next?
2: So we know once the grapes were harvested, they were placed in uh, baskets, they were taken to the grape um, processing facilities, usually in carts uh, or something like that. Um, And this is where the treading floors and, and the mechanical presses would have been housed. Um, Now, comparing the Greek and Roman periods, we think that in the earlier Greek periods much of these processing facilities would have been out in the fields uh, with the vines, it was very close by to make the process more efficient. Um, But in the Roman period, we also see them um, housing these facilities in urban areas, so they would have had to transport the grapes, um, sometimes quite a distance to get them to to be um, trod and pressed. Once the grapes got to these facilities, um, the first and most common process was to tread the grapes. Uh, They'd pour thick layers of grapes into these large waterproof platforms or or treading floors uh, and workers would crush them with their feet.
1: So that's for real. Did they wash their feet first? Do we we think they did?
2: Absolutely. absolutely And and we know that they did wash their feet. We actually have... um, written sources saying workers have to wash their feet before before they tread the grapes and they have to wear a relief (laughs) (laughs) exactly exactly and they have to be wearing suitable clothes and we get this fantastic detail through some of the ancient agricultural writers about how hygienic this process needed to be
1: and what constituted suitable clothes for squashing grapes with your toes
2: well this is where it, it also gets quite interesting because When we look at the mosaics and the frescoes we have uh, in the archaeology, we see people wearing basic Roman tunics or workwear, and or similarly in the Greek period, the the chiton or the peplos. So those kind of normal everyday clothes that we see people wearing. Um, When we get representations of of people trading grapes, they're often just wearing tunics or or loincloths with their upper bodies bare. Um, We know it was a really arduous and and jovial activity. So people got very hot and sweaty and, and it makes sense that they'd kind of strip off for the trading component but it is also quite interesting because in the ancient literature uh, we get writers telling us that there are particular clothing and cleanliness requirements to reduce sweating uh, and kind of making the the must unhygienic they say that you know workers had to wash their feet um, like we talked about but they also say that they need to wear enough clothes so that their sweats absorbed and didn't fall into the must um, so you kind of an interesting dichotomy there with where workers wearing loincloths in the um, visual representations, but then also our our written, uh, our written sources saying that they had to wear enough clothes to absorb the sweat.
1: In terms of who got to do the treading, was that more likely to be slave labor or free labor? Do we know? It sounds kind of fun. I, I don't know. I would think kind of some of the free workers might want to do that for themselves.
2: <laughs> it, it does sound fun. And it's really hard to tell. Again, we, we don't really know. We do know that uh, in terms of gender division, we think it was only men that that trod the grapes. Um, We see no representations of of women or children or anyone like that um, participating in the actual treading and and processing using the big mechanical presses. We do see some some really uh, interesting uh, depictions of women and children helping out in the harvest um, where they played perhaps a more important role. But in terms of the treading, um, it seems to have been a very, very male dominated kind of task uh, in Greek and Roman society.
1: How is the must actually captured? It's stomped, and what? How do how do they move on to the next step of the process?
2: Yeah. So once the once the grapes were uh, trod, um, and then once they were trod, the remaining pulp would be put under these large mechanical presses. We have evidence for. Um, They'd either be colossal wooden beams, uh, weighed down by weights. Uh, Once we got to the first century of of, uh, this era, they started using uh, screw presses and screw technology in in their wine presses quite commonly. Um, That would obviously extract more juice for, for different qualities and types of wine. And then once all that um, kind of happened, as the process was happening, in fact, um, the must would be flowing into these uh, large dolia or or pithoi, these huge ceramic uh, collection jars that they have in front of the processing um, floors and and press areas. They'd be collecting all the must, um, and then they'd be either transferring it by ladling into other um, dolia or uh, they'd in fact have channels running from this first kind of collection that into a whole fermentation room. Uh, in Italy, for example, we have evidence of thousands of litres of, of storage in these fermentation rooms where um, the fresh pressed must would flow into for, for that initial fermentation period. Um, so there was a real kind of sequence of events that, that you can see through the archeology span and the architecture of these wine uh, producing installations.
1: That's really interesting. And I, I wonder if there's any reason why these mechanical presses they had couldn't do the whole job. <laughs> what were the feet required for if they had a press to finish it off?
2: That's a fantastic question. And, and in fact, we know the answer to that, we're told in the literature. And I guess you can probably see by comparison to modern production too. Um, we know that the grapes were trod because it produced the best quality of wine. Um, it produced that first juice that was extracted from the must, um, which produced the kind of sweetest uh, and most flavoursome wine. Once you once you gathered up the, the rest of the pulp and put it under a mechanical press, you'd obviously be pressing a lot more of the skins and, and the seeds and the stalks that were involved in that ah, and get a, okay. a more acidic and kind of sour wine. And that, that type of wine, we're told by the ancient Greek and Roman writers, was used for the slaves and, and, and for the lower classes of, of um, society. So we see that the different processes were used to make um, completely different um, kind of qualities of wine.
1: So the personal touch, the toe lens of personal high quality touch
2: <laughs> it does it absolutely does um, and perhaps my most my 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 most favorite depiction of this is is a letter from the Emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, Roman Emperor which tells us about his experience in a you know in his own Imperial winemaking estate just outside of Rome where he sat um, and watched his workmen tread grapes uh, and while he had dinner and it was this whole kind of spectacle to make his favorite type of wine uh, and we actually think we've found this estate in the archaeology. um, And it only has a treading area. It doesn't have any evidence of mechanical presses. So it seems that they were making a very high quality wine.
1: Well, for the emperor, why not? Absolutely. Who was your typical winemaker? Since you mentioned the emperor and his winemaking estate, what kind of organization was there in this industry? I mean, were there sort of ordinary people who produced wine as well as elites, such as the emperor?
2: Yes, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. We know that various um, kind of people and, and classes of people in- engaged in the, the process of wine. Um, We know, for example, that there were landowners who owned these huge estates um, and owned all of this kind of winemaking equipment and vineyards. Um, But we think that they usually weren't involved in the actual um, process itself of making wine. They were kind of absent landowners uh, who reaped the profits, but didn't do any of the hard work as it were, um, because we know that they leased out this land to actual winemakers uh, who, who kind of undertook the processes. The the interesting thing to me, at least within my research, is that we have that's fantastic evidence for this large scale production. But we know that there would have been so much kind of domestic and smaller scale production going on all across the ancient Mediterranean countryside. Uh, we don't really see any for it in the archaeology.
1: So, did some people produce wine on a subsistence basis, the way they might have, you know, raised a few goats and 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 pigs out in the yard?
2: The the short answer is definitely yes. Um, like I said, it's really hard for us to see this in the archaeology. We think that some of their um, equipment and tools was was uh, made of wood, so it just decomposes and we have no evidence of it. Um, it was much less permanent than these large kind of estate installations that we have more evidence for. Um, but it, it really was happening. We can kind of get glimpses of it. Um, in certain archaeological contexts, but it's really difficult to kind of nail down certain conclusions about how uh, common it was and how much um, that it was happening through different historical periods.
1: Oh, that's really interesting, Um, you know, because of course I'm sitting here thinking from the modern day perspective of um, Fintners and the famous labels and how, you know, these are these are products that are widely distributed. What, what would you what would you estimate from your own research is sort of the percentage or rough division between, you know, mom and pop making their own wine for their extended family on their own property versus these large-scale producers who would have then traded wine, you know, broadly.
2: I think that the large-scale producers uh, certainly would have dominated the market. They would have been the people producing and and exporting and supplying wine to the cities, uh, the the, the smaller um, cities and settlements as well, um, for their bars, their taverns uh, and so on. But I think underpinning that, there there would have been this really extensive domestic-scale production uh, of people uh, having... A few vines in their backyard, um, harvesting the grapes, having some sort of rudimentary treading floor, or kind of uh, even just a, a basin or, or a ceramic area that they can tread the grapes in and create their own wine for for their own house. I think there was really a kind of complementary uh, economy of these two things going on at the same time. In terms of percentages, uh, I have absolutely no idea, but but we know we know that both things were happening uh, and they were kind of hand in hand.
1: Yeah, that was sort of unfair, and I I didn't even mean it to be that specific. So I am sorry. I just I I think that I'm sort of I, I'm not surprised to hear that you know the expectation is that people were producing their own wine for consumption. But I'm I'm still sort of thinking through you know what you said at the very beginning of our conversation about how wine was just utterly um, baked into basically every aspect of of everyday life from, you know, just subsistence all the way up to very important ceremonial functions. And so that leads me to, to wonder, you know, how the different, how the different varieties of wine were marketed to meet those different needs. I mean, you mentioned this, the more sour wine that was destined for the, for the slave class. Um, but, you know, did wine vary widely in its market price then as it does today?
2: It certainly did. It, it certainly did. And, and we know, uh, in fact, uh, how much it was being sold for. We, we know how variable the price was because um, at Herculaneum, for example, which is, uh, as many people know, a site fantastically preserved from the eruption of Vesuvius, uh, There's a wine bar there, and we've got painted on the wall of this wine bar four different types of wine that it was selling. uh, And in fact, the type of wine and the price of the wine that was being sold. Um, I can't remember off the the top of my head how much it is, but they're very, very different in prices. uh, And it makes some comparison to um, very expensive uh, vintages of wine that the the most expensive type on sale was. And then obviously, a much cheaper wine uh, if you wanted to be more economical with your drink that night
1: oh i love that so this is not a a sort of new chic thing at all when we go into a wine bar and it's all written on a blackboard (laughs) it's it's straight from herculaneum
2: absolutely not nothing has changed in the last 2000 years
1: That, that is if i had to take one lesson from 35 episodes of this podcast emlyn that would be it it's it's actually really reassuring for an anthropologist like myself
2: it is, it is. And it's fascinating. Uh, it's particularly fascinating to me because, you know, when I'm out in the field doing this work and, and kind of around local uh, Greek communities, for example, they're still doing these things. I, I visited a, a lady uh, who, who owns a small property near one of the sites I work on, and she's got her own little treading floor there with, with you know, a small vineyard, and, and they make their own wine for their household. So really, really common threads still happening in these communities.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So how did somebody learn how to make wine?
2: That is also a really good question. And, and again, something that's, that's really hard to answer with any kind of real certainty. Uh, but I think the most likely uh, answer to it is, is that it was really a kind of um, family business, first and foremost, and, and knowledge was passed down through through family ties. Um, we know the, the writer Columella, who provides one of the most important um, kind of agricultural Roman treatises uh, and and describes a lot about winemaking. Um, We know he was influenced um, by his uncle, who was also a winemaker, and they were both living in what's what's now Spain. Um, So I think knowledge would have been passed down through families like that. Uh, In terms of people that went off and worked the vintage kind of seasonally, like like we were talking about earlier. I think that would have been less less likely, uh, less specialized skills to have needed to be passed down through family ties or, or kind of taught like that. Um, but that that real knowledge of winemaking, uh, harvesting, fermenting, pressing, all that kind of stuff, I think would have been very much a, a family business for these um, for these landowners and producers to have learned.
1: And given that, uh, were there any sort of credentials required for somebody to set up one of these? big, you know, commercial level production facilities?
2: Not not sure about credentials. We don't have any evidence of specific credentials needed, but we do know that it was a very specialised um, uh, kind of skill set required for the overall winemaking process, and, and you needed real um, specialist knowledge to be a winemaker. So there would have been that kind of training, which uh, I assume would have been passed down through uh, family ties predominantly and, and those kind of connections. We do, um, we do know that farming was quite well respected in the ancient world, um, but again, not much knowledge of credentials as such that would have been required.
1: And, and how about oversight, official oversight?
2: The best glimpse we get into official oversight is, is the fact that in the Roman era, uh, we know certain laws were passed kind of controlling the winemaking industry and particularly those large-scale productions of wine. We know that um, wine merchants who were buying the wine from these estates uh, created contracts um, and they would be promised certain quantities and certain qualities of wine from these estates even before the grapes were harvested. So the, the contract optimistic would... business <laughs> exactly exactly the contracts are drawn up well in advance of, of this wine even being fermented and made um, and then obviously tastings would happen once the wine was made and if the wine wasn't deemed to be of the quality promised in the contract um, you could return it and you could actually um, get your money back so some real kind of uh, detailed frameworks controlling the Roman wine industry at least
1: oh right well and that could have gotten pretty ugly sometimes
2: absolutely we, we do hear uh, a, a certain story um i think it's from roman egypt where where someone didn't get their, their promised wine the wine when it was tasted was actually sour and vinegary uh and, and the person described in this story certainly isn't very happy at all so it could have turned quite nasty
1: no we've all been there at the table and you don't want to be that that restaurant customer <laughs> who sends absolutely. it back but yeah, it, it, it can make for a disappointing meal. And I can only imagine how much more disappointing if your entire season's worth of planned beverage was not to your liking.
2: Absolutely right. And we know that it was a, an incredibly lucrative and profitable business. So if your whole vintage is, is kind of not turning out as expected, you, you really would be out of pocket quite a bit and, and not happy at all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds really, really stressful between worrying about the weather and praying to the gods that the grapes made it unscathed off the vine in, in the right time frame. And and then, yeah, that the, the actual end result was what you wanted. So h- how lucrative could this be for a successful producer?
2: Well, I think the short answer is incredibly lucrative, Um we hear of some of the wealthiest people in Rome uh, engaging in viticulture and having huge estates producing wine. Um, one of one of the the uh, one of my most favourite stories is of uh, the emperor's son, or the, the dictator rather, Sulla, Roman dictator. His son owned the most prestigious vineyards in, um, in Rome, just south producing this Falernian wine, which is one of the most famous Roman wine types. Uh, and we know that he was incredibly wealthy just by owning this land and these vines and producing this wine. Um, so some of the wealthiest people in ancient Greece and Rome would have uh, participated in wine making and, and trading and export of wine.
1: And how were they paid? Was this a a cash in hand sort of thing, or was there some kind of bartering network that was sometimes used? I'm sort of curious what what we have in terms of records of of how these winemakers made their living.
2: Yeah, well, I think here it's important to kind of recognize the the difference between the various people involved in in winemaking. These Huge landowners would have uh, exported massive shipments of wine and would have been paid, uh, obviously, in coin and became very, very wealthy, uh, making their fortune from this kind of viticultural endeavour. But then the slaves, obviously, wouldn't have been paid. They would have been brought in or, or permanently working these estates the freedmen that, that came in for the, for the harvest and for the vintage season seasonally, uh, I assume would have been paid um, on kind of temporary contracts uh, paid in coin or, or, you know, paid in food or, or other commodities. Um, so there's a real kind of stratification of people involved in and in, in different uh, things or, or kind of aspects to their payment.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it, it brings to mind the current um, migrant labor situation, uh, which I, I I think that migrant labor is a very important part of so many agricultural businesses um, in the United States, certainly, which is where I'm most familiar with, but um, it sounds like there's some parallels there.
2: Yeah, very much so. I I imagine that people could potentially have, have, you know, traveled across um, the Mediterranean to other regions just to seek better fortunes and to seek out kind of work, uh, possibly in these areas to to improve uh, their potential livelihood.
1: Yeah, and these large estates. Um, I, I know, for example, you know, you go today to France, and out in the countryside, there are estates that have uh, olives growing right next to, to grapes, and they produce both. Do, do we see that sort of diversification in any of these ancient estates?
2: We, we absolutely do. And this is something that's been really uh, unrecognized in traditional scholarship on this topic and only in the last kind of 10 or 20 years is starting to appear. Um, Traditionally, we thought that um, ancient agriculture was quite monocultural. You know, they'd specialise in a certain crop uh, and, and they would really prioritise that one crop, whether it was olives or vines or fruit trees. Uh, but now we know that, that it was very, very polycultural. And uh, for a number of reasons, they they could make more money by being polycultural. They could harvest different crops at different times of the year. Uh, they would interplant vines with, with grain underneath the vines or with olive trees or fruit trees or within the vineyard. Um, we also know that they trained vines on these larger trees, that there was a technique called uh, mm. arbustum, which Romans used to to kind of not use trellises or not trail vines on the ground, but in fact train them up these trees and kind of harvest them on ladders in that manner. So very, very polycultural, the, these kind of farming societies.
1: Yeah, well, it makes sense, right? I mean, not just to make more money, but if there's a way in which you can um, more easily train your vines than building and maintaining a trellis system will by all means have them grow up these trees it sounds really sensible
2: exactly right and and even to reduce that that risk of uh kind of participating in viticulture and you know if you ruin your your yearly your yearly vintage uh, your wine turns sour you've at least got some other crops to fall back on
1: so if we could just go back for a second to what, what you mentioned earlier on, which was the, the very deep roots of viticulture back you know, 6,000 years ago um, in the ancient Near East, how did this knowledge migrate originally to the ancient world? I mean, do we have sort of any, any moments where we can say, aha, uh-huh, that's the first mention of it or the first time we're seeing it in the archaeological record?
2: We do have some indications uh, of this very early history of of wine and viticulture. Um, Some researchers from the US have found some fantastic evidence of uh, traces of fermented grape juice in uh, very old ceramic vessels from um, places around what's now Georgia and Iran and Turkey. So we think that it, it perhaps originated in those kind of regions. But in terms of how it was transmitted further, I guess, west across the Mediterranean, we know very little we can we can only really hazard uh, educated guesses, Uh, of course, also wild grapevines existed across the Mediterranean so it's quite possible that there are a number of people groups experimenting and accidentally creating kind of fermented grape drinks at the same time, but then. After that, we think that uh, it was really that trading and migration movement that spread knowledge of how to make wine as an actual process and how to ferment um, grape juice. We think that the Greeks and and the Phoenicians played a really key role in this. They were very, very kind of trading and and colonising focused cultures uh, and they disseminated knowledge as as they went. Um, They they had wine ingrained across uh, their uh, cultures as well, so they kind of took it naturally with them too. So we think it was through those kind of means that that knowledge of winemaking and the processes traveled kind of from the, from the Eastern Mediterranean further West across.
1: Yeah. it's really interesting how we, well, I mean, the more people move, the more um, ideas and goods and well, germs move, right? <laughs> we're so painfully aware in this day and age. Absolutely right. And speaking of movement, it just, I, I wonder the way today there's, you know uh, a great localized identity for different styles of wine is there any evidence for that kind of interregional trade even in the in this sort of ancient time period for different wines
2: We know that certain countries in antiquity specialised in in producing certain types of wine. We know that uh, Turkey and the the Levant, what's now kind of Israel, Palestine, Syria, these regions specialised in, um, at one point in time, a very sweet type of wine, kind of like what we'd call a dessert wine uh, at the moment. And this picked up popularity amongst certain um, groups uh, of people in, in antiquity. Uh, we know that the Romans uh, in Italy and their kind of colonies in Spain specialised in very different types of wine to that as well. So there was there was very much regional specialisation and at various points in time, one region would be very popular, their, their type of wine would be very popular and that would kind of take off as a, a booming export. So there was a, a real kind of specialisation that we see today as well.
1: It's so tempting in our presentist way that we we just can't help having sometimes of thinking oh well it would have been so hard to move things around in those days they probably just drank the local wine but no I mean they were very sophisticated in their trade routes for so many different commodities no reason to think wine wouldn't be any different
2: that's exactly right and we we see fantastic evidence of that through uh, things like shipwrecks where we've got thousands of of amphora these ceramic wine jars uh, in these shipwrecks uh, and we can tell through scientific testing that they had wine in them we can kind of see the the DNA and the trace markers of wine in these ceramic jars so we know exactly how they were shipping it and we know exactly how they were moving huge quantities of of wine around the Mediterranean 2000 years ago.
1: Yeah tell us a little bit more about that if you would I mean I think one of your areas of particular interest is what you've called knowledge networks, right? Um, And talking about the distribution of these, these agricultural technologies and the processes in the classical to late antique eras.
2: Yeah, so my work in that area really revolves around this concept that that winemaking and, and particularly the technologies involved, as you say, like mechanical presses, weren't always easily portable. These mechanical presses were, were huge implements sometimes with, with massive stone kind of blocks weighing tons, um, but still knowledge of their use and, and construction and so on traveled far and wide across the Mediterranean world Um uh, the interesting thing, I think, is that we see different technologies emerging in different places and not always along the same timelines um, that kind of make immediate sense to us. For example, in some locations we see press technologies using um, quite rudimentary lever and weight systems that are hundreds of years old at the time, but they're taking over from much newer inventions using a screw, for example, or kind of similarly we see technologies invented centuries apart used at the same time, side by side. So I'm really interested to see how knowledge of these technologies travelled and what determined a use of a particular technology in a specific context. Was it practicality or cost or expertise of people in that area, um, the connectivity of that area, the availability of resources and so on? So really interested to investigate how this knowledge travelled across the Mediterranean.
1: Oh, it's so interesting. And I mean, and it, it's something that I, I mean, I think that's a, a very interesting analytical framework to apply to the study of any commodity in the ancient past. So um, I, I take it that you're also looking at uh, the, the circumstances around the production of oil as well. I know that's not what we're talking about today, but um, that is something else that you've been looking at in these time periods in these places.
2: Yeah, absolutely right, uh, and the, the simple reason for that is the technologies and tools and, and processes to make oil and wine are essentially uh, very similar in antiquity. They um, often used exactly the same pressing installation or technology to make both wine and oil. Of course, they have different Minus harvests. the
1: feet. <laughs> I don't know, Minus do they the step on the olive? On the-
2: <laughs> exactly right. Olive is slightly too hard just to tread and get some nice juice that out of. So would hurt, yeah.
1: It I don't know what the really
2: someone, someone <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Someone did once suggest that um, they used kind of wooden clogs to stomp on olives and, and get those first juices out. But I think that theory has since been debunked.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound quite so jolly as, as jumping up and down on squishy grapes.
2: Exactly right. Not so pleasant.
1: Did any of these producers team up to work together? I mean, for, for an industry that had so many apparent risks through really each step of the process, it, it sounds like it might have made sense in principle, but do you see any evidence for it?
2: I don't I don't know of any evidence of winemakers kind of combining forces and, and teaming up, but we do know that they worked very closely with people in other industries and kind of codependent industries. Um, we know that, you know, for example, there were the landowners who'd work cooperatively with the tenants uh, and then they would all work cooperatively with the agents who were kind of middlemen between the landowner and the, and the buyers of this wine. Um, and then obviously they'd have to work with the, the shipping agents and, and the kind of people that would actually move the wine around. So there was this whole network of people working very collaboratively and, and interdependently with each other. Um, but in terms of winemakers actually working together, I'm not so sure that's as, as easy to see.
1: You know, I just, I, I didn't think to ask you sooner, but now I'm, I'm sort of imagining thinking about your, you know, the supply chain and, and all the steps that the wine would move along. Was there the equivalent of the, of the corner wine store in antiquity? You mentioned the wine bar um, in Herculaneum, but how about just a retail outlet where you got it to go? <laughs>
2: I think there certainly was, and, you know, if you visit sites like uh, Pompeii is probably the best place to to see evidence of that. We have the the wine bars there and the taverna there where you would have your your wine available to buy and you'd have the choice of either um, sitting or standing there and drinking it or you know you could probably buy an amphora of it and and take it home for your for your own use at home. So there was absolutely uh, the kind of wine bar or or wine shop equivalent in antiquity. It's
1: been the most interesting insight that you've gained as a result of your research on this topic of of ancient Greco-Roman viticulture.
2: I think going back again to that notion that that winemaking has so many common threads uh, over the past 3000 years and and essentially, um, when you kind of go down to the, the nuts and bolts of it very little has changed, you know, the Industrial Revolution changed quite a bit in terms of um, technologies used but really um, when you go to smaller scale communities in, in the Mediterranean today, they're still doing exactly the same processes, uh, fermenting the wine in the same big ceramic wine jars that the Romans and Greeks would have done in that same kind <laughs> of area 2000 years ago. So I think that's the thing that has struck me most profoundly, in, in you know, the, all the years that I've been involved in this kind of research area.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And again, like I said before, I, I mean, I just, I love that it, it's reassuring and, it, it does make it seem like there's, there is some grander code about, about how we humans do all live and we only need a certain number of things and we tend to go about them in the same way, the most sort of efficient and, and fulfilling way we can possibly manage.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, as we move into the future and we start thinking more about sustainable practices and how we're going to get through the next kind of 100 or 200 years, I think there's a lot we can learn from how they were doing it back then when they were coping with kind of changing climate every now and then and natural disasters and so on. I think there's a lot we can can draw out from ancient agricultural practices.
1: Do you have any really big questions that you have yet to to really explore? Whether because you haven't come across the right site that that has the evidence that would allow you to ask the question, or you know, just you haven't had a chance to get to it yet.
2: Something that really fascinates me, and and you know, which people have hazarded guesses, and there are some uh, indications in the ancient literature and the ancient writers, but it's this this um, Idea of what colour these ancient wines actually were were they were they red were they white or rosé or a kind ah. of orange wine um, like I said we get. Could- some descriptions in the ancient sources but how realistic these were or were they more idealized is, is a bit unknown so I'd be quite keen to, to look into that more and then to use modern scientific methods to, to see if we can actually really tease apart what exact color these ancient wines were and, and what tools and processes were used to make specific colors and types of wine for, for example you come across sites that have only mechanical presses and no treading floor and were they making uh, more of a white wine they weren't fermenting the wine with the skins um, they were pressing it separately so some really interesting kind of areas in there that I'd love to spend some time with and tease apart
1: oh just whatever you do don't come out and tell us that wine dark sea is is not accurate it's one of my favorite phrases from Homer
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a tricky one that I read a very interesting article recently talking about um, possible color blindness and and how that might play into wine dark sea (laughs)
1: Broke my heart right there. (laughs) I'll go have a glass of wine and get over it. Much needed. Yeah, yeah. So Emlyn, my last question for you, would you have made a good ancient Greco-Roman winemaker?
2: I think my short answer to this question is perhaps, But I think when it comes to the extreme dancing and singing and working tirelessly to stomp grapes on a slippery treading floor for hours and hours, I think (laughs) there may be better people for the job than me.
1: Yeah, maybe the better way to ask the question is, would you have liked to have done it?
2: (laughs) I think in selective periods of time.
1: No, I I just, I think, look, it it is at at the end of the day, um, if you're involved in the entire process from... Uh, the grapevine through to to the bottle or the amphora, it's super stressful. I mean, you're a farmer, <laughs> you know, and so you're you're really subject to the vagaries of climate change, as you said, and and just everyday weather patterns.
2: Exactly right, and you know, without those kind of modern technologies we have that we use to stabilize wine and try to control those conditions as best we can you you really would be at at, at the the kind of mercy of nature and whatever else would happen within your must
1: what's a good reason to have many gods to pray to isn't it that's
2: exactly right
1: emlyn thank you so much for joining us today this has been so interesting and um you know as as we always say just eye-opening as to How much of what we still experience in our daily life that you know really makes us not so dissimilar to our ancient forebears who also liked a tipple even more than we do in the modern day it sounds like
2: (laughs) i think absolutely right uh they certainly liked a a drink in in many many different contexts and i think we can all cheers to that cheers (laughs) thanks for having me karen
1: It seems that Marcus Aurelius gave it to us straight in the report to his tutor that we kicked off with. A day in the life of a Greco-Roman wine producer, however rich and powerful, was predicated on an already ancient melange of hard work, the odd celebration, and the endless cycle of the seasons. I hope you enjoyed being with us today, and if you're inspired to pour a glass of something nice to cap it off,
0: Santé. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at Emlyn KD on Twitter. For show updates and additional content, as always, give us a follow on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. And for visibility's sake, if you like the show, consider leaving us a rating. And I don't know, if you feel so inclined, maybe a little review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. We are so happy to have the time machine fired up again. We have a slew of riveting new episodes coming on this season, so keep a lookout every other Friday. Until next time. Time travelers. Ah, oh, that feels so good to say again. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with past preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law-Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.